Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, death threats for Hispanic contractors who bid to build the border wall. Somerville's mayor and Bristol sheriff butt heads over sanctuary cities. And the fight to free a Vermont migrant worker. It's our Latinx roundtable. Later in the show, they thought he was a legend, but the monster turned out to be an ordinary guy who wanted to live his life alone deep in the woods of Maine. Author Michael Finkel shares the story chronicled in his new book, The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. It is our April selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio to discuss the latest in Latinx news, Julio Ricardo Varela, digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, contributor to NPR's Latino USA, and founder of Latino Rebels. Welcome back, Julio. Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> Thank you. And Marcela Garcia, bilingual journalist and editorial writer, columnist, and editorial board member for the Boston Globe. Hello again, Marcela. Thanks for having me. So this story caught my attention right away about the Hispanic contractors because we had a big story earlier in the week about how 600 at least, possibly more, have signed up to build this border wall that President Trump very much wants to get built. And I have to confess, it never occurred to me that anybody Latino would Want put to their get bid in. Yeah. But they did, and that's what they do, so hey. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a Washington Post. They actually, It's actually a really interesting story. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, it kind of speaks to the complexity of what it is to be Latino in America in the 21st century. But at the same time, what were they expecting What's interesting, one of the things, I guess I posted this on my Facebook because my Facebook wall has now become a news source. Like, it's it's just crazy. Well, as it has Facebook. It has, has so, Facebook, yeah. but it's really fascinating because I, I love how my friends, like, actually start commenting on it. And one person said it best and goes, if you just said that you want to make money and then it's running a business, then then at least you, you, you're being real. But if you start saying, well, you know, like, you start revealing what you feel about, like my family's from Mexico and it, it, it's kind of like this weird feeling that, well, you got your end of the bargain, but no one else now mm. can't get it. So sorry, I'm going to build a wall and make money off of this. So I, I, it speaks a lot to the sort of level of I'm a better Latino than you are, like I get, and it, and it who's really, pure and who's not? I yeah, guess. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's okay. kind of, I mean, I don't know yeah. what Marcella well, thinks because I mean, it's, I'm fascinated by it. I, I would say think, that these firms are. It looks like ones in Fort Worth and ones in Arizona, so they're in the area. Mm -hmm. uh, well, ahead. I mean, it works both ways. Like Latinos here in the U.S., are, I feel like they're always held to a different standard in the sense that you have to be this, you have to do this, you have to do that. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. I mean, it's like any other issue, like there will be people that will use this as a way to, you know, establish or, or to, you know, maybe make a statement and, oh, I'm a Latino business and I don't want to have anything of this. Well, good for you. Mm -hmm. But there are other Latino businesses that have no problem with that. And why should we fault them? So in, in a way, it's like 
why is this a story? You well, know? I guess it's a no, story because honestly. of it's no. I, well, I will answer. It's a story because <laughs> of the implications that it is supporting the policy of building the wall, which is fraught with many issues. But there's that plenty concern. of people like there was plenty. Of I'm people. not saying there aren't. I'm but just there's saying, plenty of people that yeah. are like, yeah, build the wall. And there's plenty I, I of Latinos. That. There's plenty. There. There's plenty of people, I, Latinos, African Americans, whites in general, that benefit from, for example, immigration detention. Private prisons. There's this like cottage industry around private prisons, and it's full of Latinos, and it's full right, of, and border patrol of agents African Americans too. Yeah, border, border patrol, patrol agents. On the, on, if you go down to the southwest, border patrol agents. There's a majority of Latinos, and guess yep. why? It's because they many are Spanish speaking, so and they, they want to hire on people. the border. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, but to your point, no, I don't want to dismiss the news value of this. It's just that I guess Julio put it best when he said it just speaks to the complexities of what it means to be a Latino nowadays. Mm-hmm. You're, I guess, called in many different directions. I mean, it happens to us in a right. professional oh, life absolutely. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do I speak for all of my race, or is it? You know, do I have you know particular? Yeah. So it's it, it really that's that's what it does. That's a takeaway for me. I, like I, On a much smaller scale, I, I, it calls to mind for me people who have made choices about turning down roles yeah. that demean sure. African-Americans. Now, they could make a lot of money. And they just said, you know, this is where but my it line speak, is. It, but then other people say, okay, I'd, I'd rather, be, a, I'd rather be at the a table. Bigger issue. Right. There, there's, yeah. there's, it speaks to a bigger issue. I talk about it in the thick all the time, is that there's a sector of Latinos who are saying, we want to cooperate with the Trump yeah. administration. We want to, we want to make table. money. Right. And it might not be, you know, it's not a large majority. I mean, I would think it's a small group compared to the larger Latino community in the United States. But th- there's a strategy out there. Is it an effective one? Who knows? I, I don't know yet. Well, and see, and I guess I would say if you are a Latino legislator, if you're in mm-hmm. Congress, if you're a senator, I'm expecting you to sit down with the president of the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. Right? That's why we elected so, you for. And I'm bringing that up because there was the Congressional Black Caucus went to meet with President Trump and got a whole lot of hell from a group called You Will Be Replaced, saying they didn't think that was right. Well, that makes no sense yeah. to me. Okay, yeah. this is my opinion. I'd have a different feeling about, about other this? people going to hang out with him for clear, singular profit. Well, so I, I make a distinction. Well, there may be another you know strategy I mean? behind you know? it, too. You know, like you, you know? leverage what you have in business or, or your business. Could be. Yeah. You know, to influence policy in yes. different but the, areas. But the, I think one of the things that I'm hearing to, to put a final point on this yeah. in the community is that, sure, if they're Latinos that are meeting with Trump, that's fine. But are you bringing up these issues yeah. of like the fact that the campaign has painted Integrate. the criminality mm-hmm. of immigrants? Like, yeah. that's a serious issue yeah. that affects people. People aren't like going, leaving their homes. They're not spending money. Yeah. And the fact that it's kind of like, oh, we won't talk about it. Yeah, it's like, on the side. I think that's right. where the issue right. lies. Okay. I think that you want more, a little bit more transparency in this. Hey, we like to bring you here at Under the Radar, <laughs> the nuanced conversation from the people who know. That was know. nuanced. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, um, let's move to this ICE detainer situation. You know, we hear this week just have had two things happen in our midst. In Lawrence, five people were arrested. And then we have the situation going on in Vermont, where we had two Vermont immigration rights activists arrested, and one was detained. Well, they were all detained, but one was denied bail because of a DUI charge. And it all really comes under the umbrella of the change in priorities by ICE, which took me a long time to sort of get my head around. Like, what did that mean? So I finally have found clear English. So let me say it to everybody else. So in the past, underneath President Obama, and let's 
put an asterisk there. Remember that he was called the deporter in chief. So it wasn't that he wasn't sending many people out of the country. He was. But there were some priorities that he designated to the ICE folks. And one of them would, would be that people who were convicted of serious crimes were prioritized. Top of the list for deportations. Now, under President Trump, that has been a change by executive order. And people who are here illegally who are convicted of any crime, no matter how minor, can be deported. And they are prioritized. That is completely different, which in the end, as many people have now pointed out, means that 11 million people could actually be at risk for deportation because they fit the definition of any crime. And this, of course, then raises the issue about probable cause and unconstitutionality and the Fourth Amendment. So that's why there's been a lot of attention to this. And I want to point out of the five in Lawrence who were arrested, two had no criminal record of the time that we're talking about serious, and the other ones had multiple traffic violations. So there we are. In Vermont, the lawyers are claiming that some of these people were targeted because of their political activities, because they're right. justice workers, they're, they're labor activists there. And what, at least one of them was working in the, had worked in the dairy industry. And I want to pause there. For me, the story in Vermont is that people don't know how many people who are migrants work in the dairy industry right. in Vermont. I mean, yeah, this is a lot. So the <laughs> issue here, I guess, it's like to use the word priority for deportation is, is a moot point already, you know, because there are no priorities. Anybody can be deported at any time under this administration. There's no clarity. And the issue with these requests that immigration authorities send to local officials is that nothing is backing them up in the, the large majority of cases. And by nothing, I mean there is no warrant, there is no probable cause. So in reality, like you said, anybody who hasn't committed a crime, that person can be deported. And immigration authorities are requesting state and local officials their help you know, mm -hmm. for, for grabbing these people, right? Now, just because you're here illegally doesn't mean that you don't have a right to be here. That's number mm -hmm. one. And that's, you know, that's for our system to determine it. And number two, ICE, immigration, the immigration authorities, are free to absolutely come and get anybody. They don't need anywhere, the help. Anywhere, anywhere. Anywhere, anytime. anytime. Right. They don't need the help of state and local officials. That's and that's when it gets really, really tricky. And that's what this whole sanctuary city debate is about exactly. at its core. Right. Because immigration officials are, need the collaboration of the state. <sighs> and it effectively turns them into a deportation force. And that's what state and local officials are resisting to. Because, first of all, immigrants are not criminal. doesn't equal criminality. Right. You know, and number two, they want to keep their community safe. And if, if they, they send the message that they are, in fact, an extended arm of federal immigration officers, then it's going to be a complete mess. And it's not going to keep their community safe. It's a complete opposite. Yeah, and Before you speak, yeah. that's my guest, Marcella Garcia. She's editorial and op-ed writer for the Boston Globe bilingual journalist. Now you're going to hear from Julio uh, Vicardo, <laughs> Ricardo Varela, who's uh, with the Futuro Media Group and um, podcast co-host of uh, In the Thick. Before you say anything, the people in, in Lawrence were picked up going to apply for their citizenship. And, and they're permanent legal. Right. That needs to be said. Go ahead. Right. Okay. So there's so many angles to this. And I have to commend my my hermana, my colleague, Marcelo Garcia, who just brilliantly explained yes. the issue in, in about a minute. So I am not going to do it any justice. I think <laughs> what I'll add to this are three things. Number one, for the declined detainers, you can get that primary information now from ICE. And what's really fascinating about it is how they use really fuzzy math. 
They're using statistics to tell a narrative that really is just a narrative. It's not factual. So the point being is that when you start looking at these sample crimes, mm -hmm. those aren't crimes that are happening all over the country. There's just a, a crime. Start looking at the charts. More than half of those crimes that are people that are let go are charges. Right. Okay? They're, right. Not, They're not indictments. And, They're not convictions. And then you start looking at some of the crimes. Intimidation. Liquor. There's just so many things about this that are just wrong. But the problem, Callie, is the fact that you what happened, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, first press conference that happened after the health care loss. So the first thing the White House does after the health care loss is let John Spicer, let's roll out Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions then proceeds to say that we're going to remove Department of Justice funds from cities who are not following immigration law. Guess what? Because we have this detainer report that doesn't give you the full picture, that's only a portion of this, because all of a sudden, all these cities are being overrun by criminal immigrants. Right. When in fact, if you look at the story, look at the Lawrence story, bunch of guys going to get their citizenship, get arrested <laughs> for a traffic violation, and are gonna get deported? Come on. No, it's political yeah. strategy, yeah. because they, they you know came out of these laws, they realized that Congress is not gonna cooperate with them. The one thing that they can do is talk loudly about immigration because they it's believe right. that they have that the presidential power is full when it comes to foreign nationals and immigration. And of course, as we have seen with the Muslim ban, the courts have stopped that dead in its tracks. And so they're going to run into the same issue again if they go ahead and start, you know, withdrawing or denying grants. It's going to end up in the courts. Right. And it's going to, I mean, again, this Monday, this Tuesday, we have a case here in Massachusetts. Right. That is going to, for the first time, a state, the state highest court, this is the first time that it, that advocates believe it's it's happened around the country. Many courts, federal appeals, district court in all over the country have found that these requests, the Isaac are unconstitutional right. and violate the law, right? right? They're, not, this issued, is the first they're time. not issued by judges. It's really right. important That's to right. think that Right. And it's voluntary. Right. It's voluntary. Exactly. Right. But. This is the first time the Massachusetts High Court is going to look at the issue. And it's an opportunity for right. the Massachusetts High Court to provide clarity and say this is absolutely wrong. And then, you know, state officials that are faced with the threat from Sessions and mm -hmm. from the DOJ can say, you know, I can't do it because my courts are saying that this is right. illegal. Right. And the right. Providence, so, yeah, yeah, the Providence it's Mayor, Elordsa, I talked to Providence Mayor Elordsa mm -hmm. right after the American Mayor's Association right. met with the Department of Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly this past week. And I asked him straight up, so what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do if these funds right. go? And he's like, we've talked to everybody. And it's what Marcella's saying. It's like every lawyer that we've talked to can challenge. This is unconstitutional. Right. So expect a fight. And this is just because Attorney General Jeff Sessions said it, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. So we bled a little bit over into sanctuary cities and, and the threat to remove funds for sanctuary cities. I just want to put a little button on this ICE detainer thing because in terms of their prioritizing and the free range that they have, because what stops me is that they can get people who have committed an act for which they could be charged. Right. That's just what so people understand I mean, the nebulousness of it. The second part I really want to emphasize again I got this from Migrant Justice, or Andrea did, the associate producer for this show. 1,500 to 2,000 people in Vermont are migrant workers in Vermont. The majority of them are Latino. Some of them work seasonally for, like, apple picking, but usually those are from Jamaica. This comes from the Migrant Justice Organization. Right. But 90% of the dairy workers, okay, are Latino. And we are talking about if you remove that labor— 
there's been lots of stories about this. Ben and Jerry's um, then, was a big, it, it, a big follow. Google uh, Ben and Jerry's migrant workers. Right. And like I want to point ago. out that someone has to hire them. So it's, exactly. you know, it doesn't happen by itself. And the farmers um, have many the times other thing. said. Oh, my God. Yeah. That is the other thing. I know. It's such a double standard that we are here well, talking about criminality of immigrants. What about the criminality of employers? And I will say that there was a great piece done, and which won a DuPont Columbia Award many years ago, where the, the dairy farmers in Vermont said then, come and get me. Because I got to milk these cows. So while you people are talking, you come get me as I'm hiring who I need to hire. And, and exactly. uh, you know, and that's what happens. So since we sort of bled into sanctuary <laughs> cities, let's talk about this incredible spat between Please. Somerville Mayor George, I mean, awesome. Joe uh, Curtitone and Bristol County Sheriff Tom uh, Hudson, which is really very interesting. And essentially, Mayor Curtitone said, come get me. Too. Let me just say, yeah, that's his quote. Yeah. You come and get me because he's opposing Hudson, saying all these people are criminals. You know, all the communities are being overrun. These sanctuary cities are protecting criminals. And I want to put on the table: immigration experts who do read the data have said now over and over again that the most crimes are committed by people born in the U.S. Yeah, not by right. other just many, con- many, yes. many research studies, whatever. But what what Cortetone was reacting to was the latest, you know nut idea to come out of Sheriff Hudson math, which mm-hmm. is that there should be arrest warrants issued mm-hmm. for officials who refuse to comply with immigration officers' requests, right. right? And so my personal feeling is that I'm torn. I mean, the first time I saw this, Cortatone being so vocal is like, oh, fine, you know, great. But the other part of me is like, okay, here we are in this space having this conversation about sanctuary cities, when in reality, we should be having this other conversation. Right. So it just contributes to the noise and to this idea that sanctuary cities are what they're not, right? And yes, Cortatone, bless him, he is amazing. He's been on this fight for a long time. He's always been on the right side of this issue. But at the end of the day, there's nothing he can do to prevent ICE from coming. You know, mm-hmm. same thing with Mayor Walsh. Mm-hmm. Again, always has been on the right side of this issue. But at the end of the day, it is political grandstanding, too. Right. And so Walsh, remember when he said that he was going to offer City Hall as a shelter? And, right. You know, that's fine. But what happens in day two, three, four, five? I mean, right. again, it's just political grandstanding. And on a practical issue, it does not, you know, at a practical level, it doesn't help the issue. Right. Mm-hmm. But, at the, but the point being that people are also missing about all these mayors, and you talk to any mayor or municipal leader, mm. they already are cooperating with ICE. Mm. Like, it's already happening. I think it's the whole issue of, like, this notion that cities are letting murderers and rapists free. Run rampant. Yeah. Run rampant. Yeah. Mm. It's just a crock, guys, yeah. okay? Let's just... It's wrong. It's factually wrong. The president of the United States and the administration lie about that all the time. So, so let me pause you and say what happens, though, as you know, is that something horrible like that incident out west that I now cannot recall recently. And people are like, see, that's what I told you. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So the point <laughs> you know. being is like, so then we take the let's yeah. let's go to the to the mayor and, and the, the sheriff, Joe Arpaio of, of Massachusetts, who I, who I yeah. like to to say, mm-hmm. I agree with Marcella's point to a point. Because here's the problem with Hudson. He's the one testifying. Right. He's the one that gets the access to the testifying in Congress, and he's starting to get the amplification. So if the mayor of Somerville needs to use social media to kind of get attention and kind of say, yo, buddy, you need to chill out Mm -hmm. because this is not Massachusetts, then I think it's an effective strategy to a point. Like, But I understand Marcella's point about it being political grandstanding, but what is Hudson doing? Like he's the biggest. He's a clown. Like, he's, he's a clown. He's the he's biggest like political like he 
opportunists in Massachusetts right now. I would love if, you know, in my Dreamovision, like, would I love to cover something for Latin? I want to go down to South Massachusetts, by the way, and actually start looking at these stories because I guarantee you, if if you start digging what's happening down there, mm. it's all a shell game, like anywhere else. Like, let's really stick to what the facts are. And he's just using fear and xenophobia to really do a disservice to to immigrant communities in Massachusetts. Well, the quote from Joe Curtitone of Somerville is, officials like Hudson should feel free to keep blowing hot air. By all means, expose yourself as a sort of jackbooted thug who wants to jail your political opponents for made-up offenses. That was in addition to his saying, come and get me. So, just so we're clear about where Joe Curtitone yeah. is. Now we know where that. he stands. Now we know where he stands. There's no uh, question. Wanted to get your take on something that's gone a bit viral in conversation uh, Renee Graham wrote a piece, and the title of it is very clear. Yes, Boston, you are racist. If you've read the comments, and they've been... It's brutal. Yeah. It's it brutal. almost kind of proves yeah. the case. She, so I'm she sorry. told me yesterday that she had more than 80 unread emails still. Yeah. And it's been the most read thing on our site for three days straight. So I want to just <laughs> let people know where this came from. Michael Che, who is the co-host with Colin Jost on Weekend Update of SNL, is a you know regular comedian, so he goes around visiting many towns, and he said Boston is the most racist city he's ever been to. He did not say this in 1970. He said this a month ago, hmm. and people lost their minds. And then, so this is Renee Graham amplifying what he said and trying to explain where that comes from. I read the comments, which were brutal enough to read, but a lot of them struck uh, and said, you're giving us old examples. And so that's old Boston. Maybe that was then, but now. That's, so I wanted you two to respond issue. to well, that. That's I mean, the issue. The right? thing, the, the, okay, if you have a criticism and, and, and that's a fair, that's a fair, you know, fair mm -hmm. enough criticism. You, you're not providing, you know, contemporary examples. Mm -hmm. But her point is that the racism that prevails here in Boston is not in your face, you know, exactly. here yeah. is the Confederate flag. Mm -hmm. It is institutional. It seeps. It's like everywhere, right? And so, I mean, maybe she should have mentioned the Boston Latin school fiasco, right? Some of the commenters did. Some there of is, the commenters did. actually a commenter so if that you, listed a whole thing. And if, so, you, if you're going to yeah. use that criticism yeah, to right. completely shut down the notion that Boston is... And then the other criticism that I love, that it was so, so, so disingenuous is, oh, well, I mean, he's saying that it's the most racist. It's not the most racist. I'm like, well, I don't care if it's the second, third, fourth, or fifth. The point is that yeah. there is still unaddressed racism here, right? The other point that Michael Shea made in those comments is that Go ask, you know, your, your closest black friend, your black friend yeah. and see how, how he feels. Because the other thing about all the comments is that it, there were all these white guys yeah. talking about how there is no racism. Yeah. Well, well who are you to tell? Well, yeah. that's the point. I, I think it gets and I think Marcella brought it up to a point to expand it a little bit more is the structural racism yeah, this, right. and the institutional racism of this city. People don't usually understand. And, and I think means. that's mm -hmm. and I, I think we, you know, it's not the, the flag going into the black person on the steps of city hall during mm -hmm. busing anymore mm -hmm. but it's still the flag going through the stomach of the person at city hall it's just a different type i mean of and by symbol. the way it's not binary now he said racist and he's african-american so right. that's the so, other thing but that it's, like, it's all african-american it, it, it's not about. without coincidence yeah. let's just look at the city in general yeah but like i'm I, just making a point that it's, it's yeah, just but the not about african-americans I mean, you know yeah yeah, yeah. The, yeah the division of the city and the neighborhoods are inherently categorized by race you know what i mean it's like you know, we're not talking about, you know, the gentrification of this city. Um, let's, you know, I'm driving through 
parts of Austin, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like there's, you know, like yeah. West Roxbury, like mm -hmm. there's certain unwritten rules, unwritten things said about this city that you're supposed to like, you know, there's the good section and there's the bad section. And those conversations are happening. And if to say that that's not racist, then then people are really missing out on the structural portion of, of the city. So and if I could add something, I think that it's difficult for people to understand what you mean by structure. That means that there are powers that be right. either consciously or unconsciously. That means with intentionality or sometimes not just programmatically because of the Implicitly. networks mm -hmm. and how it happens um, means that it's harder for you to get a lot of goods and services or move up as you might without those things. That's what that means. So getting a loan. Like yeah, representation. Being, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, decades and decades and decades a lot of, of this thing going on on that's right and so. anyone who raises this well that's anyone that who raises this is like an agitator and go back to your corner or you're well, creating that was my a, second a, point you're a pot stirrer and to i'm like speak about race is not racist. well i mean exactly. yeah. what, what, yeah, okay. my one contribution to this before renee wrote this is mm -hmm. i told her remember a couple months ago the conversation about race that marty walsh had yes, on right. a saturday okay i went to that right and of course who opens up the conversation Jim Rooney, mm. white Irish guy, you know, and talks about his experience in Southie. <laughs> Are you kidding me? We're having a conversation about race and you're giving the microphone to a guy who is white and Irish. Fine. Okay. They had no Latino speaking. Really? They only had African-Americans. They had the youth, which was great. They had a great representation from the youth. And this is the part, you know, that I really wanted to say. Everyone was panning themselves in the back, including yeah. Mayor Walsh. Oh, this is awesome. Yeah, this is amazing. Boston. Oh, my Here God. I'm like, that was a mess. And you need to. But the moment you start saying that, you are, you know, they turn and they get oh. like, oh, my God, why are you saying this? We, we, we've come a long way. We're doing progress. And no, you need to recognize that that's not enough. And and I honestly do not know what has happened. For all I know, you know, and to give to be fair, maybe other conversations have been happening and things perhaps are moving in a different direction behind the scenes, but we don't know. And so, again, it is not enough to have a conversation. Well, as an African-American woman, let me just say that the conversation in 2017 cannot be binary. No. And, in fact, no. if one were to follow up with Michael Che, he would tell you that. Yeah, right? absolutely. So absolutely. people just assume that because he's African-American, he's speaking only of... Yeah, no. Right, and so, it's also this what, notion you know? of, like, anyone mm -hmm. who brings this up is, is seen as... An agitator. An agitator, but yeah. also professionally in, in sort of this second, like... I'm a national journalist, guys. Mm -hmm. Like, I live in Boston. I, I get things that I can get published in national outlets before I can get published here in Boston. I, I'm just being honest yeah. with you guys. Yeah. It's like, because you're not seen as part of... The conversation. The, or, or part of the conversation or, or, or good enough. And I think that's the crux of this, that the city of Boston needs to really understand that for it to proceed forward, it needs to start hearing voices around this table, outside of this table, that have been challenging this for years. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. We're having a spirited conversation uh, with our Latinx roundtable guests, Julio Ricardo Varela and Marcella Garcia. He said that. I did not say that. Um, speaking of hearing voices, I'm really taken with this. Let's just bring the temperature down for a hot minute. Um, uh, with this documentary about an L.A. bicycle crew for women of color called Ovarian Psychos. Yep. I love it because they're women and they're speaking about women's power. Let's take a little listen to a piece of the documentary. 
there's strength in numbers, right? And so when you're when you're riding by yourself, yeah, it feels you know it feels good. But when you're riding with a group of women, it feels like damn, like I'm supported. I got backup. You feel like you could win the war. You feel like nothing, absolutely nothing, can stop you. So the point of their group is, as they say, to redefine identity and to confront injustice. Mm -hmm. They're young women. And they also say it's a refuge for the runaway and for the throwaway. The full film, uh, well, it aired March 27th on PBS Independent Lens, but I wanted to highlight it because anytime you have a kind of organized group of young voices talking about some important issues, but in, bringing it to you in a different way. Yeah. And um, it was I such it was a cool like, name. Yeah. The ovarian okay, psychos. I want to say, like, yeah. I'm so happy people are discovering ovarian psychos because... Oh, you knew about it all. Yeah. Right. yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Okay. okay. All right, all right. Let, let, You're just so the guy happening. in the room talk about ovarian <laughs> yeah. psychos. Okay. Let, First of all, you let, guys let, need to just come on. step yeah. back for a second. Clearly, I guess we should. We've been reading about ovarian psychos since last summer, okay? Okay, relax. No, it's actually two years before. Yeah, fine. Latino okay. Rebels. Okay, I, I just want to know the, the huge irony of having the only guy in the room talk about right, ovarian if you let me talk. That's why they were they became psycho. But go ahead, Julio. Yeah. <laughs> go right, ahead. I'm going to jump in. Oh, two years ago, uh, and it's actually Charisse Delgadillo of Latino Rebels. I know. Who's yes. based in L.A., she interviewed ovarian psychos at South by Southwest. <laughs> we had them on Latino Rebels Radio. Awesome. They were fantastic. They awesome. were exactly the reason why I get excited as a journalist to hear these authentic voices, to be like, you know what? We're not seeing ourselves represented. So what we're going to do is do it ourselves. And I think. How old are they? They seem so young. They're in their. I believe the, the founders new... are late 20s. They're 30 something. Oh, yeah. okay. I fear um, early 30s. They have okay. this like amazing vibe and. Having interacted with them, they're just real, right? And I think it's really nice to see people that are just doing it to just kind of solve their own problem. Be like, you know what? We own our voices, and now they're getting the attention. I, it makes me really proud to to feel like the things that I do or or what other people have done to to say like this. These voices matter. So. That's all I was going to say about ovarian psychos. You guys can now talk about it as women, but I just want, I'm very excited that they are getting this recognition. Well, thank you for giving us permission. <laughs> Go oh ahead, my God, Wow. Yes. So, so generous. Bravo. I'm not trying to mansplain Bravo. here. I'm not mansplaining. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I think Marcella thinks you were mansplaining. Go ahead, Marcella. Oh, I was so wrong, Callie. I was so wrong. Thank I'll you for saying you were Find your place, not. Marcella. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, it is great. It's so empowering. And again, mm -hmm. And uh, to uh, reinforce that point about, you know, we, we're not hearing enough of these voices in these times. And so they are doing it on their own. And that's great. They're, there's so much empowerment in that act of like saying, you know what, we're going to do it our way. We're going to do it in a way that, that we've all, I mean, it's biking, like, yeah. you know, the quintessential white, <laughs> you know, mm. I don't want to make it about race, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's like they're claiming their space, they're claiming their voices in, in a very unique way. And the more we hear, and I'm sure there are other examples like that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and of course, this is Chicanos in L.A., so mm -hmm. of course you're going to have the numbers and the amplification or the media that, it, that that brings. But I'm sure there are other examples like that happening. You know, in Lawrence, for example, I wouldn't be surprised if there were some things happening around, and, and I'm just like throwing it out there because mm -hmm. I would love to hear about that because I wouldn't be surprised. People are not seeing themselves represented in the news, in government, in all spaces. 
of society, so they're making their own. They're, they're, they're also embracing huge. people who who don't have a community. If right. You right. Will. So if you so, look at the bru- right. you look at the mm-hmm. Brujas movement mm-hmm. that's uh, yes. happening, the witches mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know Brujas Spanish for witches, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's happening in New York. Mm-hmm. There's actually also a group of one of my favorite groups. Uh, they're punk skateboard, yeah, like skater women, Latino, in which they're this collective. They're amazing. I, I actually think like. You know, this has been going on for a couple of years and to see people starting to pay attention and paying attention for the right reasons. I think there's an authenticity to what these type mm-hmm. of collectives bring and it gives a sense of community. Mm. It gives a sense of of like we're in this together and especially what you're going to see given sort of the Trump administration, sort of the reaction to the Trump administration, you're going to start seeing these groups become more and more stronger and more and more emboldened to be like, you know what, we got this. So it's, it's a fascinating mm. movement that just, I think, represents a dynamic part of the community. Well, I'll be watching them. They're very interesting. So let me close out this way. Next week is Immigrants Day at the White at the, at the White House, at the State House. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you two have a thought about what its impact and import may be in these times and given some of the issues that are hmm. right before us. Well, I mean, Im- let's talk about what Immigrants Day is. It's this group of, of advocate, advocates and, and they organize and they bring their members to talk to legislatures. Right. So they have a morning event and they usually have a speaker and I don't know who the speaker is this year, actually. In the past, this has been Jose Antonio Vargas, you know, mm-hmm. the guy, um, right. the undocumented journalist turned activist. And last year was Juno Diaz. And then, again, this year, I'm not um, I, I I'm not know. really sure yeah. who the speaker is. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the idea is to gather or convene immigrant groups from all over the state and, you know, so that they can talk to the legislatures and they go and they're organized around specific issues. So, of course, it's going to be huge, again, because there is that legislative element or, or, or that advocacy element. Um, not a lot of people know about that, but that's really what, what that day is all about. It's not right. just, oh, you know, let's talk about immigrants and have, you know, some food or whatever. Yeah. No, it's actually meetings with legislatures. And, and so I assume that one of the you know biggest pieces of legislation that they're going to be discussing or advocating for is the Safe Communities Act, mm. which has been proposed by Senator Jamie Eldridge mm. and um, State Rep Juana Matias, the one from Lawrence. And again, it deals with sanctuary yeah. cities and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, again, other pieces of legislation. So I would think that there's going to be a lot of activity and a lot of people going for that reason, because it is an opportunity for them to talk to their legislators. I I worry. Well, what's interesting is that I don't know if there's going to be counter protests or counter trolling, Mm -hmm. because the incidence of more like people trolling immigrants, rights groups, Mm -hmm. threatening them online, reporting them to ICE and DHS like there is this sense of emboldenedness of like if you're going to come out and protest or, or engage the community, there's sort of this, you know, crack team now that's going to try to like make your life hell. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if Massachusetts is going to experience that uh, because I this do, year more than ever this saying. year more than ever, mm-hmm. given what's what's happened yeah. with the election. Well, we shall see. I just wanted to mention that because uh, I think that because so much policy is going to be is being discussed that this year may have even a larger response. I thank you both for joining me. Thank you. It was thank great. You so much for having us. <laughs> I know. You're never quiet. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, no, we are not. Julio Ricardo Varela is the digital editor for the Futuro Media Group, co-host of the In the Thick podcast, contributor to NPR's Latino USA, and the founder of Latino Rebels. And Marcella Garcia is a bilingual 
bilingual journalist and editorial writer, columnist, and editorial board member for the Boston Globe. Coming up, it sounds like one of those enduring legends, the Loch Ness Monster, the Yeti, Bigfoot. Maine's North Pond Hermit had become a legend by the time he was caught, 27 years after he disappeared. Author Michael Finkel's book is a hard-to-believe true narrative of a modern-day hermit whose self-imposed isolation is much more than a simple story. The Stranger in the Woods, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit, is our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley. 